This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Obviously, the biggest story happening worldwide is what is happening in London. And, uh, of course, uh, we all know the horrific story of... uh, uh, it looks like a lone wolf now who uh, went across Westminster Bridge, uh, just literally plowing through people, and then uh, onto uh, onto Parliament, trying to ram the gates, getting in there, taking the life of a police officer before uh, he was eventually shot. Let's bring in Ross McLean, crime sc- uh, specialist, security expert. RossMcLeanSecurity.com, and you can check out his Facebook page, Crime Power and Politics, and he is with us now. Hello, Ross. How are you today? I'm doing good, Scott. Doing good. Thanks for taking the time to join us. Uh, your your thoughts on what has transpired in the last 24 hours? Where have we come from where this all started and where we are now? Yeah, I, I think we're hitting a, another big uh, turning point, perhaps, on this uh, the whole idea of the war on terror and coming to grips with it, Scott. Uh, I think that's where we're going to be. Uh, you know, it's it's interesting that the you know the British politicians' response to this has been the you know, chin up, we'll keep on, this won't change us sort of thing, whatever. The old British... Uh, Stiff up our lip, yeah. But that's, but that's really a bit of a, pardon me for being a bit cynical, it's a bit of a political ploy for getting people to say, we're together, don't worry, we're going to keep on, when what they really should be doing is putting out a statement of how they're going to have zero tolerance for this and stomp this out and not deal with it, is really the statement that needs to be heard, I think, uh, from the people. Uh, for this, so I think I think we're going to see a bit of a change coming over time because this is a this is a pretty big one here. This is striking right at the heart of London. So uh, tell us what we know about the uh, attacker. Well, we just had released uh, moments ago. I understand you announced it on your station the identity of the actual mm-hmm. uh, terrorist, Khalid Massoud, age fifty-two, known to police various criminal offenses for assaults, weapons, other things in the past. Uh, He had been investigated by MI5, military intelligence, uh, in the past, looking at uh, terrorism and extremism. The British Prime Minister described him as being on the periphery, not someone that they were overly concerned with. And certainly we saw the carnage of what he was able to uh, complete using just a vehicle and and two knives. It caused complete carnage and havoc to innocent people. So... That's where we're sitting now. The, the, the question now is, uh, they've done some investigation post this before releasing his name. They executed six different search warrants. They've arrested eight different people, although they have not revealed what those charges are for, uh, you know, what in their relation to. They're still describing uh, this terrorist, Scott, as a lone wolf. I, I really push back on the lone wolf. I don't, I don't believe in calling people like this a lone wolf. And I'll tell you why, Scott. I make the analogy to these low-tech terrorist attacks are very much like what Israel puts up with, with Scud missiles in the past, where, where crude bombs, if you will, are launched into the air, not really knowing where they're going to land, hoping you hit a high-value target and taking out collateral damage. They're Scud missiles. Now, if Scud missiles had been launched into London yesterday, they would find out where those Scud missiles are made, and they would take out the factory. And what they need to do with this is they need to find out where these people are being made who will act as scud missiles and just gleefully, if you will, mow down innocent people. So I think that's where they're going to have to go to look at how this is possible to create this in the middle of civilization. Well, to your point, they're talking about lone wolf, yet ISIS has claimed responsibility. You can't have both, can you? 
No, that's that's exactly it. ISIS has claimed responsibility. Some are saying, well, they didn't name him in the in the ISIS claim of responsibility, and we haven't seen the martyrdom video yet. We don't know if that was done, or even if intelligence or police would suppress that if there was a martyrdom video done. That might have been some of the things that they were searching for because they like to claim uh, the credit for this, so they get the credit when they go on to heaven and get their virgins and other things. Uh, you know, that was my next point. Uh, whether they this is affiliated uh, with ISIS or not, they're obviously going to claim responsibility for it. Uh, quite possible. Some people are saying that. I think the investigation uh, will, will certainly bear that out. Whether or not the public learns of that is, is another story. But something I want to point out, uh, just in general, to make an analogy about how do we stop and how do we look at these things. You know, these people who are brought up uh, to believe uh, what they need to believe in order to act as these suicide uh, terrorist killers, there's an environment that they're brought up in. And, you know, what you have to see is this is very much like I'll go back to the uh, the mafia movies, you know, uh, where the godfather comes up to you and says, I may ask a favor of you one day. Now, I may never ask a favor of you, but if I do... I need you to follow through on it if I'm going to do this for you. And what's happened is these people are getting tapped on the shoulder at the right time, told it's your turn now to go and do this, and it's your time to go and do it. And they haven't, they're not causing necessarily other problems, but they'll go out and do it uh, when they're tapped on the shoulder to do it. So I think this is the sort of network that has to be looked at, Scott. Uh, obviously born in Britain, so he must have been radicalized there. I mean, he's radicalized at home at the end of the day, is he not? Yeah, but uh, Britain, people have to understand, for those who haven't been there, now I haven't been there since I was a child, but I've certainly done the research on it. They have had uh, massive immigration for quite a while, and they have what are described by people in Britain as basically ghettos that will be Somalian ghettos, Afghani ghettos, Eritrean ghettos, uh, and these sort of things. And it's not unusual to see second and third generation uh, immigrants uh, from these areas who are not assimilating. And, and hold these values. I'll, I'll note that the police, in, the, in their description of him, said that he has several aliases. Well, normally when they're saying several aliases, there's a thing where you get born with your British name, then maybe you change your name to a more Arab name when you're older, and then you adopt an ISIS name. Uh, and we've seen that done from people who've gone from Canada to go for a fight for ISIS. So I suspect that's going to be where the many aliases have come from, that the identity has changed as the as the man grew up. So sympathize, a sympathizer become participant? Sympathizer, and maybe sympathizer is being too weak, maybe a believer the whole way through, yeah. but not, not acting in, until told. And I'll point out that ISIS and its magazines and its websites put out just before the start of the, uh, the new year that they wanted people to con- uh, do acts of terrorism in their homeland, not travel to Syria. They taught them how to and gave instructions how to use knives to stab and kill. They talked about how to use vehicles to cause the most carnage and and hurt. And what they're doing here, Scott, make no doubt about it, is for their team. Mm -hmm. They're doing it so their team can feel that they've got influence and they've got people who will die for the cause and that killing these people doesn't really mean anything because they're not really people. Because they're not really inflicting damage that's going to bring down London or bring down the Western world. This is very much acts to uh, uh, bring up the morale on their team. Uh, you said earlier, stomp this out. How easy is that? And are you alluding to it being easier because he is a homegrown terrorist? Well, it's going to take political will to to stomp this out because 
you know, one of the things that I started off talking about, I, I'm not impressed by, and this is the, the security guy in me, someone who talks about recovering after you've suffered a terrorist loss. How good you recover from the terrorist loss. I would rather prevent the terrorist act in the first place, as I've always talked about. So one of the things they're going to have to do is take a good hard, hard look at how these people, these environments are created, that someone's allowed to come up, believe, and then at one point act like this. And to make the analogy, Scott, I think we're going to have to look at something. Now, it's not perfect. It's not all the way through. But we're going to have to look at things similar to like what we do with child pornography. If you're going and viewing child pornography, if you're trading in child pornography, there are heavy criminal sentences for that, just for going to websites and looking at things like that. Mm -hmm. And I think we're going to have to... Uh, now, the bar is going to have to be high, very well structured, very well laid out. You don't want to interfere with the with the church and the Muslims who are, who are good Muslims, who are following the religion of peace as opposed to radical Islam. But we need to find out that if there are people, groups, uh, indeed mosques, uh, leaders, that are putting out information, that I'll make the metaphor to child porn about, that there needs to be crimes for that, and you need to lock it up and stomp it out prior to. Otherwise... You'll just be responding to this for years to come. And as we've seen, the, the price of response is all these lost lives. How is reaction to this different because this is a homegrown scenario? Uh, you know, for, once again, for me, the homegrown, uh, it, it's a word that sometimes these words get used to confuse things. Uh, I, I don't care where the person was born, what it says on their birth certificate. I, I believe that if they've bought into the ideology and the ideology is spread that's such that it can take root in a country, that, that's perhaps even a, a, a worse thing. So the homegrown doesn't change it for me. Now, it may change it for some who want to argue that, oh, see, it's not people from those countries. But this is not a passport. I guess, my point, I guess my point with all of this, Ross, is you're right. It's not people from those countries. But obviously, this in investigation is not, it shouldn't just be solely viewed from, you know, these other lands, but what is going on within our own countries. Right. And, and, and some of this is, is the very fact that some of these mosques, uh, and, and we'll look at, we're not speaking about this one specifically, particularly, and you can ask any Muslim about this, about the Wahhabi sect of, of, of Muslim uh, that comes out of Saudi Arabia. They've spent a lot of money to spread those mosques. They finance them far and wide across the country. And most Muslims will tell you that that's about the wildest version of, uh, of the Koran and, and the way they follow it you would ever want to find. Uh, for doing stuff. So some of it is, if it is being spread, this, this sort of thing is being spread and it's being brought out, we have to decide as a society, do we want to allow this to spread and then deal with the fallout of people being run over, school children, visitors, tourists, policemen, uh, mothers, couples, uh, walking down the street randomly as someone decides to go off, or do we want to try and prevent this before it happens, like we try to do with child pornography? Get rid of the child pornography, maybe you stop a child molester down the road. It's not a perfect analogy, but I'm just saying we're going to have to look at some, some new tactics in this, this war. So what do you think the trigger was this time? Do you think it had anything to do with uh, travel bans that have been issued from certain countries? Do you, do you think, or, and again, we just discussed this the other day, or do you think this is, you know, it was time, so he did it? Well, this was on the anniversary of the Brussels airport attack. Do you think that do you think that plays a significant role in this? Y yes, it does. There's quite often the 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 ISIS 
uh, likes to play off of anniversaries and do things on anniversaries. That's why terror alerts are usually raised on anniversaries of 9-11 and attacks like that, and most security agencies are aware of when they come up uh, for doing that. So that's certainly one thing that plays into it. There certainly has been, as you said, the electronics ban was just put on, and the U.K. took part in that following the U.S.'s lead. So, you know, it could have been multiple triggers that did it. But as I said, the key trigger here was they wanted to uh, get some publicity for the team so they can feel like uh, they're winning. Uh, you know, if you if you listen to the politics coming out of the, the United States, it's about, you know, keeping people out. What does it say when the people live within? And this is perhaps where I was trying to go with the with the question before: was that does this change the the investigation when we start looking inside our own borders? Because now we're all of a sudden going to be talking about the individual rights of Canadians or British or Americans. Well, yes, and 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 the idea is though. I mean, if you were to take and back this up to uh, pre-internet days when you had a war, if you had. You know, countries certainly had spies that got inside of other countries and tried to, you know, uh, steal plans and disrupt things and place bombs and do stuff. If we've got people within our country, within the U.S., that that harbor plans of taking down the country. And certainly uh, when you strike against a political target, that is terrorism by its very definition, striking at the House of Parliament. And we had that happen here. You're, You're going to have to look at dealing with that threat within. I mean, when I when I deal with bad guys strictly on a security criminal basis, I can have somebody assaulting and beating someone up outside of my company's property or inside of my company's property. It doesn't matter to me. I want them to stop beating up my people. Hmm. So, I, I, as I said, I don't think the geography has that much to do with it. It's the actual crime, the intent, and the behavior. Do we know anything about this man's family? Uh, the, the information has just been released. We don't know. You, we can assume that, uh, and this is an assumption and speculation, that when they when they uh, found out who he was, they executed those six search warrants. They were uh, Some of them were in the uh, city of Birmingham, uh, north of London, which is the second has the second highest instance of jihadi terrorist acts, second only to London, um, in the UK. So they would have looked there. I'm sure they would have been looking for evidence of uh, planning, plotting, communications, uh, other support. And, and sometimes you always have to look for booby traps and uh, other bombs or other weapons or, or some such thing. Why why other arrests if he was a lone wolf? Well, we don't know the nature of the arrests. We don't we don't know what the nature of the arrest is. So we'll yeah. have to see. It could have been that they were that they were harboring. They may have found weapons there. There may have been other offenses while they're executing the warrants. We we can't really speculate. And um, hopefully the police will give that information as to why they made the arrests further on we certainly saw in the u.s we've seen uh the wife spouse and neighbors of terrorists who committed terrorist acts in orlando and in san bernardino Mm -hmm. Uh, those people being charged for knowing or supplying guns or weapons or some such thing Uh, we also know that apparently this vehicle that was used was a rental vehicle so did someone else perhaps uh, rent the vehicle or that sort of thing well we'll have to wait for the outcome of the investigation on that Ross McLean has been with us, crime specialist, security expert, RossMcLeanSecurity.com, and you can check out the Facebook page, Crime Power and Politics. Ross, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. 
Thanks so much, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Yesterday, of course, the federal budget uh, was announced, 2017 budget. What are our, uh, What has our finance minister done to curb or urge spending? Is anything different here? Is it pretty much a status quo budget? To talk more about all of this, Paul Kershaw is with us, School of Population and Public Health, University of British Columbia, and on the line with us now. Hello, Paul. How are you today? I'm well, thanks. Thanks for having me. Thank you for taking the time to join us. You know, whenever there's a election or any sort of campaigning going on, we hear uh, virtually every political party talk about the middle class, and, and that's certainly become a buzz term uh, in the last little while, that it's all about helping the middle class. What does this budget do to help the middle class? Well, if you're in the older part of the middle class, it actually does quite a lot. The biggest program investments were in the old age security system and in the Canada health transfer. And health care is used predominantly uh, when we're older in our lives. So, for instance, um, in, over the next few years, in, in one year, the old age security system is going to increase spending by $12 billion. And that's a big chunk of change. It's important. My grandmother's 101. But that $12 billion more that will be spent in a single year... Wow, wait a sec. Your grandmother's 101? She is 101, yeah. Good for her. Holy... I I have good genes, so I know we have to take care of an aging population. (laughs) Man, good for you. What's her secret? Uh, a wry sense of humor. There you go. Good for her. Well, pass on our best to her. That's great. I'm sorry I interrupted you. Go ahead. No, no problem. The interesting thing is as we spend uh, like an extra $12 billion in a single year in old age security, something like the national housing strategy won't even spend that much money over 11 years. Um, and so that's a bit more worrisome because for a younger middle class, we're really being harmed by rising housing prices that are leaving our earnings behind. We're kind of caught between a vice grip of time and money pressures. Take, for example, like you know, in, in Hamilton, it used to take four years uh, for a typical young adult back in the 70s to save a 20% down payment on an average-priced home. But if you adjust for inflation and flash forward to today, it now takes 14 years. Hmm. It's like losing a decade of work. Uh, when it comes to saving for our major cost of living. And unfortunately, our national housing strategy isn't, uh, that was introduced yesterday, and this is important, like the government deserves credit for introducing a national strategy on housing, but it isn't yet engaging sufficiently with the degree to which the housing market is disproportionately harming younger people, crushing their dreams of ownership and weighing them down with heavy debt levels, either as renters or owners. So uh, that being said, uh, you said lots there for seniors and such and those on the older end of the demographic. What about millennials? Yeah, I mean, to make it concrete, we brought my lab from UBC into the budget lockup and, and analyzed how spending breaks down by age. The bottom line is that in 2017, the federal government will spend about $23,000 for every person over 65 on important things like old age security and health care. But by contrast, we spend about a quarter of that, around $5,500 uh, per younger person. And that's if I'm really being generous to how I count what the federal government spends money on. And so you will hear new announcements for things like child care, parental leave, post-secondary, and it's important for the federal government to invest in those things. But if you look at the dollar values, the dollar values are so modest that they're often no different than a rounding error in the total government budget. Hmm. Uh, Do you think that's because more older people vote? There's no doubt that it's partly that politics responds to those who organize and show up, and an older demographic not only votes more, but they've been better organized between elections to shape the platforms that parties put on offer. But it's also because we have cultural momentum. 
You know, in 1976, nearly one in three seniors in this country were poor. And uh, people like my grandmother, they were too likely to go bankrupt when they wound up sick at a hospital, or they were too unlikely to be able to stretch their income into retirement after a career, especially a career of caregiving. And, um, and we said it didn't need to be that way. So we built our system of old age security. We built our health care system. And those in combination with a decent economy mean now seniors report the lowest rates of low income of any age group in the country. And that's beautiful. And we should protect it and perpetuate that over time. We're talking about my grandmother here. But we also need to be inspired by it to say, hey, where has the socioeconomic vulnerability shifted to now? And are we adapting urgently enough for that group? And it happens to be that it's gone to younger people. Our standard of living is kind of like an escalator going down so quickly because home prices are leaving our earnings behind it. No matter how much we adapt and try and sprint up by going to school more and taking on more student debt to land jobs that often pay us less, and we'll then have more dual earner households, and we'll delay starting our families, and we'll live smaller and without cars. All of those adaptations are not enough to let us actually get up the darn escalator that's moving down so fast. Hmm. And we need, uh, we need all levels of government, federally and also provincially, uh, to be paying attention to that new reality that it's younger middle class were being squeezed. Home prices seem to be at the center of this. Obviously, it's our biggest expense over a lifetime, and, and I guess that's what everybody uh, aspires to, is to have their own nest egg and their own uh, home and such. Uh, obviously, low interest rates are a huge factor, but why are we dealing with this problem here in a country like Canada? Is the answer not just building more? Do we have to realize that we're still like one-tenth the population of the United States and we can't be, can't be scared to grow here and build more, build more homes, build more towns, build more everything? Yeah, you're right. So, I mean, home prices are set by the interaction of supply and demand, and part of the issue is supply. If you think about the GCA in Hamilton, so much of the land zoned for housing is zoned for single residences. And uh, that's how we culturally got used to it over the last several decades. But that's going to have to change going forward because the cost of the land now is so great that the cost of the building is sort of the minor part of a home purchase. And we need to be adding more building onto the land in order for a younger demographic to be having a chance to be able to buy it. But, Paul, that's assuming we're all going to live, you know, 10 miles around the shore of the lake. Like, Canada's a big country. Why can't we expand and build other towns as opposed to having the majority of the population all within 100 miles of our border. Well, I think that... Like, why are we stacking Why are we stacking everybody up like cordwood, you know, down here, as opposed to letting other towns grow? Others, like, that's what the United States is. There's big towns and cities all over the place. Whereas in Canada, all of our big towns and cities are clo- relatively close to the border, and then there's nothing beyond that. So I guess the question is, where do you have the, where are the jobs? And so the jobs in our country increasingly being found in the urban centers. Uh, maybe that will change as we start thinking about different approaches to resources, and maybe we invest more in our clean technologies and start growing uh, different kinds of power sources that maybe allow us to use wind or solar or something in, in other parts. Of well, again, at one time, Paul, it was industry that took us out to those places. I mean, you know, uh, unfortunately, a lot of them could, uh, you know, have been one industry towns. And if, if those industries left, then the town, you know, slowly fails. But but at the end of the day, you know, it wasn't like all of those people were living in the outskirts and all driving into the city. There is industry beyond the border of, uh, you know, beyond the 401. Yeah, I think that's a fair observation. But I think that uh, it's uh, no surprise that we've had a growing number of 
a growing proportion of Canada's population moving into urban centers because that's where the employment has been increasingly found. I mean, we're increasingly mm-hmm. what we call that knowledge or information economy. Um, I mean, back in the day, one of the reasons why it's harder for young adults today is, you know, especially uh, young men could leave high school and get a job in yeah. fishing and forestry and so on, and often they reunionize jobs and enough to support a family. That Those days are long gone, except for, you know, if you go to Fort McMurray uh, in Alberta and a couple places in Saskatchewan now. So, I mean, the economy is just not paying young people for work in the way that it used to. Mm. And uh, we are needing to adapt to that. And you're right. I think we need to think boldly about how we grow a supply of homes. And maybe that will mean, you know, new towns develop over time. But that hasn't been the trend thus far. And so we need to work within the trends that are currently happening. And in a place like Hamilton, that's likely going to mean we need to think about how we use our land zone for residences so that we can price a younger demographic in as opposed to squeeze them out. And you're getting so much competition now in Hamilton because people are being squeezed out of the GTA and they're coming to you, often sometimes commuting back into the GTA. Mm -hmm. We need to figure out how we uh, maybe ease some of that pressure on Hamilton by supporting the GTA to open up some of its land so that more people who are working and studying there actually can live closer to where they work and study. Uh, How about municipalities? Is there much help for municipalities in this budget? Uh, you're stretching beyond what I was looking at yesterday. I mean, the infrastructure dollars are uh, significant by comparison with the past. Housing is a big part of that infrastructure. Definitely, you've had the bigger cities asking for it. But let me put in context again: the housing, the money for a national housing strategy is 11 billion dollars of the infrastructure budget. 11 billion dollars over 11 years, or a billion a year. Um, by contrast, old age security will go up by 12 billion in one single year. And so that just gives you a sense of how the priorities are really playing out in the budget. Uh, getting back to what you were saying about, uh, about millennials and, and the younger demographics, are you confident moving forward that there will be something for them? What's going to turn this around? As you said, there needs to be something to, to stimulate here as those manufacturing jobs uh, are, are going. And clearly, there is a need for housing. Isn't the answer building it? You're absolutely right. So, uh, I mean, we do need to grow the supply of homes. And one of the things that's doing that is just our land use policy these days. Often that's uh, limited to the single detached. So, uh, Generation Squeeze, I mean, we partner without doubt uh, with uh, developers in terms of how do we support them to become, to some degree, be heroes of the housing problem and build the supply that will help house people and, and contain costs. But we also need to think about um, how we moderate demand. And, and we're ha- increasingly in Ontario, we're having a conversation right now about you know, the role of foreign buyers, uh, the role of empty homes. And we need to have a, just a broader conversation about how housing has actually made people like my mom's demographic really well off while they were sleeping and watching TV and hmm. raising their kids. Because high home prices aren't uniformly bad or uniformly good. It all depends on when you got into the market. My mom, she was in the market some decades ago, and the fact that home prices have risen over the last several decades has increased her wealth enormously. But what's increased her wealth has either crushed dreams of home ownership for her kids and grandchildren or weighed them down with really heavy debt levels. And that is something we need to engage with more because right now we raise most of our taxes in this country by taxing people's income. But here are the facts. Two Ontarians and they make $40,000. One's a young renter. One's been in the housing market for decades and now owns outright in Hamilton a home worth over $700,000. When we measure their ability to pay for medical care, we treat them identically. 
but they're not identical. One's got a lot of wealth, one doesn't. We should be able to distinguish even a little bit between those two scenarios, and two good things would happen. One, we could use tax policy to signal, hey, we don't just want homes to be a source of investment. We want to keep the home price in reach, and so we're going to tax the escalation in home prices differently than we do now, and in the process, raise revenue pay for medical care for the aging population. It's a win-win. Uh, some may debate you on that one. Uh, who's buying our parents' homes? Um, a, a range of people. I mean, one of the realities is when our parents were young adults, there were about you know, 24 million Canadians that have to double-check if it was 24 or 26, but now there's 36 million of us. So, I mean, our population has just been growing, and we've been increasingly urbanized. So there's more of us as a population to buy the homes that an older population are selling. Um, it just seems that for some reason we have lost a generation here. What's it going to take to kickstart the next one? Two things. One, have more people acknowledge what you just said, that you know, economic vulnerability has shifted towards younger people. This escalator is going down faster than we can run up. If we could just have our, our, our Canadian culture recognize that, that would be the first step. And the second thing is politics responds to those who organize and show up. Uh, the younger demographic has been less likely to show up on voting day and, even more importantly, less likely to get organized in advance of elections and shape the platforms that all parties put on offer. Because I don't care who people vote for. I want all parties to want to get it right for young people. I mean, right now, all parties are committed to increasing the amount of money we put into medical care for the aging population. It's a beautiful thing. What they disagree about is how much more to put in. We could have a similar conversation, like how do we make some policy adaptations that work for younger people? And that's what we need to see going forward. But that means we need younger people to get involved with groups like Generation Squeeze, which are building a political voice for younger Canadians and going to budget lockups in Ottawa and in Toronto. And, and when people are busy either doing their exams or you know, hustling to drop off contract or CDs, I should say, to try and get a job or hustling to pick up their kids after childcare, uh, you can know that you're part of an organization, a part of a network or a coalition that's sitting up on your behalf to raise concerns that you're likely having while you're feeling too busy to do it yourself. And that's the role for Generation Squeeze. Are millennials or Generation Squeeze, as you're, as you're referring to, uh, are we creating a more socialist society as a result of this? Is capitalism dead in their eyes? No. In fact, I mean, on the housing front, um, the reality is we might double the amount of quote-unquote social housing, uh, that, but that would take us from like 5% to more like 10% of housing. So that you'd still have 9 in 10 people needing to rely on the market to provide homes that are reach for what they earn. So we've got to make the market work. And partly land use right now is getting in the way. Uh, that's why we do need to change zoning when land that's uh, reserved for residential use right now in order to try and increase supply. But we need to do that in ways that are mindful that we need complete communities. Like We need lands kept for industry so there can be jobs. And we need land kept for green space and for agriculture so that uh, we can grow food and that people who don't have yards can, um, can get access to green space. So we need to do all of these things. And that means making the market for housing uh, improve on the land already zoned for residences. Will we see millennials more engaged in politics next time out? Will we? Uh, although I, I'm sure we saw that last time as well, but it, it always appears, as we talked earlier, that it was the older demographics that, that seemed to pay more attention during election time. Are they mobilizing now? I sure hope so. We're working hard at groups like Generation Squeeze, or there are other groups like Samara Candidate who are trying to reinvigorate democratic engagement amongst younger people. I think we did show at the federal election that we can help to support a younger demographic to get out more, but it's still not getting out as much as an older demographic. And until that happens, 
politics responds to those who organize and show up, and so we can't be entirely surprised that politics doesn't prioritize younger generations as much as others. Paul Kershaw has been with us, School of Population and Public Health, University of British Columbia, talking about how the budget affects certain demographics. Paul, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. I appreciate it, too. And if you, uh, listeners want to learn more, they can go to gensqueeze.ca. Gensqueeze.ca. Thank you, Paul. Have a great day. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. All right, let's bring in Ian Lee, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, and go around uh, the horn with him, everything from budget to uh, financial literacy for kids. What a great idea this is. And even how things like what happened in the U.K. affect the economy, or do they? Uh, Ian Lee, Sprott School of Business, uh, is with us now. Hello, Ian. How are you today? I'm doing just fine, Scott. I'm recovering from uh, being locked up for uh, eight or nine hours yesterday, from nine until four. Actually, we were supposed to get out at four, because Morneau didn't stand up till 4.30. We're all standing by the door, the exit door, and they would not let us out until 4.30. So I heard that you were involved in this. Tell everybody what this process is about. Tell everybody what it's like. Sure, sure. It's... um. This has been going on, well, I've been in the lockup since 2008, and it went on for many years before then. I think it emerged in the late 60s or early 70s, either under uh, Lester Pearson or under Pierre Trudeau. I'm not sure which, but it was about that period of time. And uh, so the idea is, is that they said, well, we'll allow certain people to have early advance uh, look at the budget documents uh, so they can digest them and analyze them to understand them before the minister stands up in the House of Commons at 4 p.m. Why 4 p.m.? Because the stock markets close at 4 p.m., and the fear is as if he gives the speech before 4 p.m. Some nimble trader can use particular information in a budget to make a quick buck at the expense of everybody else. Hence, the tradition is the budget in Canada is delivered at 4 p.m. when the Toronto Stock Exchange and the capital markets close. So this idea emerged, well, we'll give advance notice, but then the same problem. These people will now have inside information, and it is inside information at law, and they can profit from it. So how do you solve that problem? You lock them up, Hmm. literally in a room that's fully, it's been swept by the police, and it's been checked out by the police, and... um, and so they, uh, you have to surrender your cell phone, just like a coat check. They give you a little tag. Hmm. And, uh, and then you go in there, and they've got the Internet uh, turned off in the room so you can't pick up someone else's Internet. You bring in your computers, that's fine. You just cannot communicate to the outside world. And they have food and coffee, um, and you have to pay for it. It's not free. The coffee's free, but the food's not. And uh, so there's, in the times gone by, there was literally about 5,000 people in there. I mean, CBC was in there in force, and CTV, and Global, and Talk Radio, and the print newspapers, and, of course, the interest groups, women's groups, anti-poverty groups, environmental groups, and the business interest groups. Well, yesterday, for the first time, the Liberals decided to change tradition and have three lockups. In other words, take the one great, big, humongous lockup and break it up into three smaller lockups. I was in the primary lockup where most people were, but they also had one on the hill for MPs and economists and, I believe, interest groups. And then I was in the one with the mainstream of the of the media and their invited guests. So, And then they give you the budget document, the actual documents that the Minister of Finance tables at 4 o'clock, and they also give it to you on a little stick, on a USB stick, so you can put it on your computer, and you've got the minister's speech that he's giving at 4 o'clock. You have all the background documents. You have the financial statements. You have all the graphs. 
all the proposals, all the charts, all the everything that is given to the public, and you sit there from the time you get in around 9 o'clock and you analyze it, you read it, you crunch it, you talk to the people, and uh, the media are in there with all their equipment, so they're taping and doing their interviews with people, but they can't broadcast it out to mm. the world until they're out of the lockup at 4 o'clock when they're allowed to then upload their uh, either their verbal interviews, if it was radio, or their interviews if it was television. So there was probably about a thousand, maybe more people there. I lock up yesterday, uh, and uh, we're all milling about. We've all got our own tables. We're sitting at tables and that sort of thing. And it's, so it's not as bad as it sounds, but you are locked up in the sense you can't leave, uh, whether you like it or not, unless you have you know a heart attack or something, and they take you off to the hospital. Hmm. But, but other than that, you are locked up there until 4 o'clock, and they take your cell phone until 4 o'clock. So you come out, get your cell phone, and you find you've got 38 email messages or 50 email messages, you know. Uh, so how difficult is this document to digest? Do you have to be a biz prof or a poli sci in order uh, to do it? No, I don't think so. I mean, let's be clear. Different people focus on different things. There's uh, some uh, accountants that come into the lockup every year, and they focus right at the numbers. They just go at the numbers. And then you get the political scientists coming in, and they're focusing more on the policy announcements. So different people focus on different things. You know, people that are uh, focusing on women's issues are going to focus on all the gender issues in the budget. Environmentalists are going to focus just on the environmental issues and that sort of thing. So, you know, people can choose to analyze what they want. And then the media, because there's so many different, quote, experts in there. You've got accountants in there, and you've got business school profs, you've got economists in there, you've got business people in there, you've got venture capitalist people in there. And, and, and what I forgot to mention was there's also about 150 senior public servants from the ministries, the government ministries that are affected by the budget. They're not allowed, as you can guess, to talk, give any political advice. But if you want technical advice and you go up to them and say, what does this mean? Right. Uh, they can say, well, what this means is dot, 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 dot. So they can give you helpful technical interpretation of, a, of the uh, forecast of the deficit, for example, and, and that sort of thing. So, you know, there's a, there's a lot of smart people in the lockup, and it, it's uh, very social. It's very friendly. Uh, but, you know, at the end, towards the last two hours, you're all just getting antsy. You just want to get out. All right. So I'm imagining you all showing up at nine o'clock and checking your life away and your phones and everything you have to do and being fingerprinted and everything and and taken into the room. I'm just exaggerating, obviously. Yeah. And and then I can imagine for the first, I don't know, 20 20 minutes or so, there's dead silence as everybody's just trying to consume this. I'd say the first two hours. Okay. So at what point does all of a sudden the laughter start or people say, well, there's nothing here or there's look at this. At what time do you start to see? noon around noon we broke in our team i was with the global team global tv mm-hmm. so we broke and had our editorial meeting which is the global tv journalists and their experts that they invited in which was myself and the uh, chief economist of the toronto dominion bank the deputy chief economist as well as the senior economist from the canadian center for policy alternatives so we all sat around this big table and the journalist basically queried us quizzed us uh, questioned us what was our take? And we don't have to agree, by the way. In fact, mm-hmm. we don't coordinate our response. I have a different take than the TD Bank. I have a different take than the Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives. And then they, the journalists, resolve the different opinions and interpretations uh, however they see fit in terms of their reporting. Hmm. Fascinating. So what was your take on this? I thought it was... Um, uh, and I can, I'll talk about the good in the budget after, because I don't want anyone to think I'm being all, all negative, but I thought it was much ado about nothing. Mm. Uh, that is to say, this was a treading water budget. 
uh, almost very, very few initiatives in the budget uh, because I think, as and I think a lot of people thought, that they're treading water waiting for Trump and company in Washington to make specific, concrete announcements of what is going to happen in each area. It, we all know what Trump is and what he stands for, but that doesn't help you when you're trying to uh, uh, come up with your own policies to deal with his announcement on capital gains tax if you don't know what his announcement is. And they haven't made any concrete announcements yet how much they're reducing the capital gains tax, or what are they going to demand in NAFTA revisions, or is there going to be a border uh, tax? We don't know these things yet. So I think what they did prudently was they said, well, we'll kick a lot of these, especially taxation decisions, we'll kick them down the road. Uh, to the fall economic update, and we just won't address them. The problem was, and this is where he was, Morneau was getting a lot of pushback, a lot of criticism, and certainly in the lockup, was that he ended up, the, the budget was just filled with platitudes and cliches, and we're working very hard, and you know, that kind of thing, and we're very proud, and, and that sort of thing. And so there was a lot of uh, uh, criticism of Morneau, that he was, you know, doing a lot of rah-rah, as I like to call mm-hmm. it, and when there wasn't a, a lot of substance in this budget. Uh, could it be that, obviously, uh, last time blowing it all, nothing left, cupboards bare, and there's no election looming? Why the need? Uh, over and above the Trump reason. I, I uh, think that that's an important secondary reason, um, or when I say secondary, additional reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, one is that they're waiting, as I said, for the other shoe to drop in Washington. The second reason is they've run up the in, in just a year and a bit. They took over, and notwithstanding their protestations, the Finance Canada documentation from the, from the bureaucrats showed that when they took over, the budget was balanced. And in the space of, what, 15 months, 16 months, they've run it up to almost $30 billion a year. Mm-hmm. So that's a huge increase. So I think that they, didn't, they were worried about not having a lot of wiggle room, fiscal wiggle room, and if they do need to cut taxes to respond to Trump over the next six months, then they would even have less wiggle room. So they decided, and I think prudently, they better not be announcing any more program spending initiatives. Uh, let's just hold the course, stay the course right now until September or uh, the fall when they'll have a better idea if they have to really dramatically cut uh, tax rates, for example, in Canada to respond to uh, the government in Washington. So I think that that was part of it, that there were already $30 billion in the ditch, or almost $30 billion in the ditch, and they didn't, they didn't think it was prudent, it was too risky to you know, take it up another $5 billion or another $10 billion um, in this budget, so they, they didn't. So I think that, that you're right, that's another reason. Uh, much in this budget for millennials, people coming up, whether it's job creation, whether yeah. it's, it, it's money for research, this sort of thing, uh, what's the future hold for them? Uh, I, I do agree with you. There was, uh, there was a lot of what I like to call symbolic politics in this budget. Um, as everyone knows, the Harper government was criticized roundly many, many times for their boutique tax cuts. You know, a special deduction for firemen to deduct, I don't know, their uniforms or something. That's called a boutique tax because it only affects a tiny, tiny number of people. But the liberals are doing the same thing. They're just not doing it with boutique tax cuts. They're doing it in a whole bunch of other areas with very small micro-policies that target a specific community. It's not done through the tax code, but nonetheless it has a similar effect. And so what I'm arguing, I believe, is that this is the political party's way 
of saying to a particular group of people that supports them, we're with you, we like you, we agree with you, you're our people, continue supporting us because we like you. And, and that's what the boutique tax cuts were, and that's what the government is doing here. The government is clearly targeting, I thought, you can see it sprinkled throughout all the words and phrasing in the budget. There's three groups especially that they're targeting. Aboriginals, women, and millennials. Now, those are pretty big groups, but, well, aboriginals are not. I mean, they're about 3% of the population, but women are obviously... <laughs> You know, 52% of the population. Mm-hmm. And millennials are very substantial. I think they're up to 25% or something like that. So, but those are the target groups. Those are, and, and so they were coming up with lots of announcements and lots of pronouncements designed to send a message to those three groups. We are on your side and we are fighting for you. And, and so it was, it was political in the sense that this is what they believe that this is their base. Harper had a base. So does the Liberal Party. No you, different. you were talking about how uh, not much can be done at this point in Canada till we know uh, what's going to happen in the United States. Um, on that note, is business better since Trump? Is, is, does business approve of Trump? Is the economy in the United States moving forward despite all, all of the negativity surrounding this man? There's, um, there's almost two uh, completely tr- uh, different Trump administrations. And uh, if you read the New York Times and the Washington Post and watch CNN, and I do read those, watch them, you'll get one story. And that story is, is very, very negative. Uh, the world's coming to hell, you know, to, to, it's going to hell in a handcart. Uh, world's coming to an end. It's bad, bad, bad. And things are just terrible. And then you turn and read the business press, which I also read, by the way. So I read the business press and I read the, uh, uh, you know, the New York Times and the Washington Post and CNN, and it's it's essentially completely opposite. It's it's I'm telling you, you'd have to you're, you're almost schizophrenic reading the two different medias, because one media is talking about all the great opportunities coming down the pipe. The stock market is up three trillion dollars, and you know they're talking about opportunities and and there's op eds of the business press saying how. The animal spirits are alive in the land again, and the economy is getting moving again. And then you go and read the other papers, and it's the absolute 180-degree opposite of what you're reading in the business press. So there's almost two completely different worlds existing side-by-side in the United States today. Uh, will this translate to his base? Uh, you know, obviously, you're talking about what's being, uh, you know, said on Wall Street and, and, and such and the equivalence of. Is this translating to his base? Will this translate into jobs, pri- you know, prosperity and, and making America great again? I think uh, it will. Uh, to what degree, I haven't said because I don't yet know. But there's no question it's going to produce some a benefit. First off, he's stimulating the economy through stimulus, through deficit financing with the uh, infrastructure, assuming it does go through. And uh, I assume some version will go through. It may not be a trillion. It might be a half a trillion. We don't know. But that's going to help stimulate. The Buy American uh, is going to bring some jobs to the Rust Belt section of the economy. I mean, there's just no question about it. Uh, uh, I'm not saying it's going to be beneficial to everybody, but it is going to bring back some jobs to some parts of the economy. And, and again, I think that the, the people supporting him, his base, are, are, and I'm looking at polls specifically of his base, the so-called Rust Belt supporters, and they are very, very happy in aggregate at the polls I'm reading uh, with Donald Trump. Um, remember, he, as they, I hear over and over from quotes, man-in-the-street interviews, they're saying Donald Trump's the first time a politician listened to us. 
and mm. spoke to us and represented our issues. And uh, this is what Canadians are not getting. I'm not here to defend Donald Trump or, or criticism, criticize him. I'm just simply telling you or explaining to you what's going on in the states and, and you know in the business media and in the his supporters. It's a completely different narrative from the narrative we're hearing on, for example, the CBC uh, in Canada or other media in Canada or the New York Times. Uh, and I'm not suggesting that their reporting is false. I'm not saying that. It's a different uh, belief about where Donald Trump is taking the country. Uh, his base, business community, are very supportive of the direction that Trump is going in. And those who are opposed to his vision are, are really opposed to the way, the direction he's taking the country. It's too bad everybody's getting so caught up in uh, all the distractions, but, uh, you know, that's to his own doing, I guess. Uh, let's switch gears and talk about what happened in the U.K. the other day. How does this affect business around the world? D- does it have an impact? Um, yes and no. I mean, if you mean by, and I want to clarify that very concretely and precisely, if you mean by impact, and I'm not suggesting you do, I'm just putting this out to make this distinctions and separations. If you mean, does this cause GDP to go down dramatically? No, it doesn't. I've actually looked at this. Do disasters hurt GDP? One of the paradoxes that have been noted in the fact in the past is disasters can actually perversely and paradoxically be good for GDP. And I don't mean that terrorism is good for anybody. Yeah, and I wanted to ask you one question before I let you go. Sure. Uh, we've talked about this many times. Lots of people have been screaming that, you know, kids need some sort of financial literacy, some sort of financial skill. It's been announced that the Ontario Education Minister, or sorry, the Education Minister, uh, Mitzi Hunter, is going to uh, is going to work towards this and, and throw up some trial balloons. What should be in a course like this? First off, I do applaud this. I'm saying this as a former banker from years ago. Uh, I was the mortgage manager in Bank of Montreal, and from that period of time, which was about 40 years ago, to today, I never cease to be amazed mm. at the number of Canadians who have essentially a zero or close to zero understanding of basic issues. I'm not talking advanced theoretical economics. I'm talking that don't have a basic understanding of what banks do. Uh, that don't have a basic understanding of uh, bank accounts and tax returns and, and that sort of thing. And and so uh, I, I'm talking very basic stuff. They don't know what a business plan is. They don't know what an asset versus – they don't know the distinction between uh, cash flows and assets. And so we you get organizations like Oxfam mixing them up all the time, mixing up assets, with, which is wealth, with income, which is not the same thing. The fact that I own a house worth a half a million or a million dollars does not make me mean that I've got a million dollars coming into my pocket every year. I don't. I have a salary coming in, and many Canadians, most Canadians are in that situation. And so I think that if, this is, if they structure it well and they consult with the private sector, including the Financial Literacy Commission in Ottawa that was established a few years ago, that they can come up with a good program, very basic, not pie in the sky, you know, that is organized around, you know, what is a credit union? What is the stock market do? What is a bank? What is a bond? Uh, you know, why do you pay taxes? Should this What's be a, should this be a, a tax and a sales tax? You know, should this, like that. really practical down to earth stuff. And I think it's long overdue and it's really important because this economy is more and more complex and more sophisticated, and the, the students coming into this economy need these, this understanding to navigate 
in this new, more complex, modern economy. I only got about 30 seconds left. What age do we start? Should this be ongoing as opposed to a one-time course? It should be ongoing, but it should be at the upper levels. I don't think they're, uh, and I say upper levels, I'm talking grade 11 or grade 12. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I think that they are starting to develop, you know, first off, they're, they're opening bank accounts when they're 16, typically, yep. I think. So I think at the upper levels, it would be more productive and more valuable. And I'm talking a course that every student must take a mandatory core course as part of their either grade 11 requirement to graduate or grade 12, one of the two. And then you take it, it's offered every year for the next generation of students coming into that grade level. Ian Lee has been with us, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. Ian, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Thanks for Thank you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.